What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets. Today's episode is a little bit different than the usual daily live streams that I do. I was interviewed by the Orange Pill Addicts podcast. They're out of Kansas City. Great guys. I will link to their website down below in the description. But we do a very wide range macro Bitcoin discussion. I think it's one of the more clear times that I go through my thesis and I expand on how I see the market, both Bitcoin and macro. Enjoy. Make sure to check out the Orange Pill Addicts podcast and let's get into it. Well, Ansel, welcome back to the Orange Pill Addicts podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited. Yeah, I looked it up. The last time we talked was block About two seven, years ago. It was seven hundred thirty-six thousand. Okay, the block height. So where we at now? We're at like seven eighty-four. It's almost fifty thousand blocks. So almost or ten wow. months, ten months or so ago. So a lot's happened. Okay, <laughs> about a year. I think in that conversation we. We're try- we were discussing everything that we seem to be starting to see. And I don't know if, I don't know. I think we all thought it, I thought it would happen sooner. Is this kind of what you thought that it would start breaking around here? Um, well, I thought, let's see, going back 10 months ago. So that would be midsummer. That was right around when CPI was peaking. And mm-hmm. I thought that CPI would peak a lot sooner. And I thought that the Fed would pivot a lot sooner. I thought something would break around Q3 of last year because with seasonality, uh, seems to be Q3 is when the financial crises tend to congregate, uh, Q3 and Q1. So I thought something would happen around Q3 of last year. And I was surprised that it, they held it together as long as they did. I don't know how much of that is due to uh, I don't know, maybe the election and the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, you know, try, there was some some duct tape and bailing wire that was used to hold this thing together a little bit longer than I thought it might. But um, no, I'm this year I'm starting to see things that I have expected, not obviously exactly. I don't know what banks are going to have trouble. I don't know what part of the financial system is going to be. Uh, showing signs of all this stuff, you know, exactly or anything. But I did expect it to be something in the plumbing of the system. And that's kind of what we started to see here. Um, So, yeah, things are playing out similar. But, you know, we're always in this business, like Bitcoin, for sure. We're early, right? We're always (laughs) early, but ahead of the trends. And we kind of see things coming that... um, might take longer than we think, but it's not as bad as the gold bugs. Okay. The gold bugs have been waiting for two decades for something to happen. And that's the camp I came from. Right. And at least I'm one year off. I'm not 20 years off. So (laughs) someone say that they were right. And then we just duct taped over it enough to get us to the point we are. Okay. I mean, that's, I think that's, that's legit. If you're talking maybe five years, but once you go on a decade, you got to start reevaluating some of your assumptions there. Yeah, that's fair. What were your first thoughts? I guess, has it been a month since the banks all started crumbling a little bit? I lost track of time, but what were your first thoughts when you saw that? Um, 
when the banks started crumbling. So, I mean, first we started hearing things about Silvergate for a long time mm -hmm. uh, because that was heavily related to FTX and some of the, you know, pump and dump crypto DeFi scams that we saw in the space. And so Silvergate was highly um, exposed to that. Then Peter Thiel came out, right? Peter Thiel came out and said, everybody, get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank immediately. And then they had a, the fastest bank run, I think, in the history of the United States. I mean, it, within 24 hours, there were billions and billions of dollars flowing out of that bank. And um, so that was my initial thought was, wow, where is this? This is happening so quickly. What, what's the next contagion? Um, but at the same time, like I said, um, I don't, I expected it to stay contained to the plumbing of the system. And so far that has been the case. We'll see if that remains the case, but, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my initial reaction at the time. So would you say that this is just the first domino to fall over maybe a six month to a year period? Yes. If we look back to the great financial crisis, which gives us an idea of what we're going to see. I mean, it's not going to be nearly, I don't think nearly as bad as the great financial crisis, but um, we had, which one was first? Was it Bear Stearns? And then that was Q1. And then Lehman Brothers was in Q3. Could have that backwards, but one of them was at the end of Q1. One of them it was at the end of Q3. Then in like the repo rumble in 2019, that happened in mid-September at the end of Q3. Um, and so that's why my focus is always on Q3. If you go back in history and you look at when like the worst days in the stock market, when these financial panics usually get the most intense, it's always in September or early October. And so, um, yeah, I think that there will be other shoes to drop, whether that this we enter a like a hardcore recession this year, I think that's less likely actually than a something like 2019, where it would they were able to keep it contained in the plumbing of the system, paper over it, and move on. And then 2020, of course, hit and COVID, and then we had that was a different story. But uh, that's my base case is 2019. This is what we're going to see here. It's just the most anticipated recession in history. I don't see how everybody can be right. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And so that's why I lean towards it being a mild recession or even maybe if we do have a hardcore recession, maybe in 2024 or 2025, we'll be able to kick it down, down the road again. So, yeah. So, so even if it's light, we're just kicking it far enough down the road for the next person to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, the systems, what's, what's, how do I want to say this? The system is, I mean, it's fatally, infected there's no way to get over this credit-based system the end of the credit-based system that we see um they'll be able to kick the can forever because they can always change the rules a little bit you know like uh they can ban short selling or they can just make everybody whole right uh like we saw with with signature and stuff so they can do those type of tricks but they can't ever get the system back into vibrancy because you can't solve a debt problem by adding more debt to the system. So overall, it's just going to continue to degrade. The system is going to continue to slow down 
and grind. Uh, and that's that's how I see this. A lot of people see hyperinflation or something like that. I still see that the overriding pressure is of this end of this long-term credit cycle, multi-generational credit cycle. The overriding uh, force is a deflationary force. And so, yeah, that's that's the end of the system is just a grind kind of like going out to entropy. You know, that's the system is going out to entropy. And in that in that situation, the reason why I think Bitcoin is going to win in that scenario where uh, the inflationary argument, it's pretty simple. We know why Bitcoin would win in that case. The supply is fixed is 21 million. But in the entropy argument, in the 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 debt cycle argument, it's kind of hard to know why Bitcoin would win. But what people do is they search for a functioning system. They search for something that has vibrancy, that has green shoots, um, that, you know, the, the economy is expanding. And I think that's what Bitcoin offers. So Bitcoin is that monetary alternative where, you know, the other option is a decrepit, what, what do I say, like a geriatric decrepit system or Bitcoin. Uh, which one would you rather be a part of? And so slowly but surely, we'll go that way. So when you talk about the system degrading, some people think hyperinflation. What, what would some other symptoms be that people can point to of the system degrading that we can see whether now or in the future? Low interest rates is one of them. Um, a lot of people think low interest rates are artificial. But we can see right now that the market is the one setting the interest rates because the Fed's Fed funds target is seven or what is it four point seven five to five percent, and the ten year is down at three point two percent today. I mean, why would anyone buy a ten year Treasury at three point two percent when they can go overnight at the Fed and get four point eight percent? It doesn't make any sense. The only reason is because their flight to safety, people would rather hold treasuries than, you know, um, hold the risk of someone else's debt or something like that. So, yeah, this this is uh, interest rates are a huge sign, a huge sign of that. Another sign is uh, I always look at commodities. Um, a lot of people that that's how I like to push back on the hyperinflation uh, narrative, because if you look at commodities, gold Yes, it's up right now, but it's barely higher than the 2011 high. And if you would have looked like two weeks ago, it would have been below the 2011 high. So we, we going on, what is that, 12 years, and it's still lower than it was back then. You can look at oil. Oil did not even hit an all-time high during the COVID crisis. Um, during when Russia, when Russia invaded Ukraine, major oil producer having the first like hot war well, not the first hot war in Europe since World War II, but, you know, there's Yugoslavia. But there, this is the first major war in Europe since World War II from a major oil producer. And oil didn't even hit a new all-time high. Like, how does that exactly work? So, yeah, and every commodity you just go down the list, there's very few commodities that have hit new all-time highs recently. Copper is one of them. But that is, I think, distorted a little bit from China going through and uh, stockpiling copper. I know in 2020, they went out there and they bought a whole bunch of copper and are just sitting on it. Um, I think maybe corn or cattle or one of the agricultural commodities did hit an all-time high, but not all of them did. So 
I mean, if you go back and just look at the commodity prices, they're not saying that we're in hyperinflationary times. We're in a deflationary type of time. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say to that. I have a couple things I want to say there, but going back to the inflation or the um, or the interest rates point, do you think that the yeah. Fed is going to pivot soon? Um, I think they will pivot when they have to save something, you know. So if there is a major systemic plumbing issue, then they will come in and they'll pivot. Um, they don't want to let a plumbing issue go out into the broader market and cause freezing of the economy. So that's when they will pivot. Um, so, yeah, is that coming soon? Maybe Q3. But Powell also has MO of pausing so in back if you go back to 2019 you know powell was pretty pretty new to the fed and one of the first things he did is he in december of 2018 he said uh monetary policy is on autopilot we're going to do qt we're going to do 25 basis points every meeting and then what did he do the very next month in january of 2019 he paused rate hikes okay and then in July, he cut rate hikes six months later. So I, I, he does have an MO of pivoting, and I think he wants to pause. I really do. I think reading all of his commentary, watching him on every single thing that he does, I feel like I know Jay Powell. <laughs> Jay Powell and me, we go way back. And so I, I think he wants to pause. That's what I think. And since he's the chairman, he's going to get what he wants. We'll see what happens in the next meeting. I think it's about 50-50 right now. The markets are pricing in about 50-50 chance whether he raises another 25 basis points. But uh, that's that's where it's at. Are you starting to fall in love with J-Pow a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> starting to get some <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome? Uh, oh, man. Well, you know, he's he is he works for Wall Street. And I think you can definitely see uh, who I was listening to somebody. I don't know. Is some commentator out there that was talking about how Janet Yellen, she has like very little pedigree. Her pedigree is being bought by the elitists and Davos and that kind of stuff. Uh, ben Bernanke, same thing. I don't know about Alan Greenspan. I mean, he kind of liked Ayn Rand, right? He was one of her disciples, uh, Goldbug. But then he totally flipped when he got into being Fed chair. So anyway, those are the last few Fed chairs up to Jay Powell. And I think that he is not part of the Davos crowd. I think he is, he, well, definitely his lineage is like old American Virginia landowners. Like that's where his stock comes from. And he works for the Wall Street banks. And I think they picked him for that reason. Like, that they knew that he had this in his DNA, that he is going to uh, protect the American interests over like Davos and over the ECB and that kind of stuff. So I really, on my podcast, I really concentrate on some of these geopolitical things like that. But yeah, I, I don't like Jay Powell. I think he's probably a st relatively straight shooter from what I've seen. And he is acting in good faith. I think, and that's kind of heretical to say in Bitcoin, but <laughs> that is, that's what I, that's what I see out there. Do you it's think because he seems not super into the CBDC world, um, whereas a lot of the other politicians are like very much embracing or hoping for a CBDC. So I think that's kind of to your point of maybe j Powell 
could be worse for sure. Um, you could have a much worse person in that position. Yeah, you could have Lil Brainerd, or you could have one of those other like ultra liberal globalist types that uh, will do the bidding of they they'll do the bidding of Davos over Wall Street, you know. And mm, Wall Street's right. okay with that most of the time, but I think it's come to a head. You know, they Wall Street sees. I mean, they they have self preservation at at heart here, and it's not. I mean, I'm not saying that Wall Street's good, but Wall Street, it's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Wall Street, they have self-preservation against the very same global globalist Davos, Klaus Schwab elites that we do. Right. And so I think that's the the fight going on. And that's why Jay, Jay Powell has really stiff arm CBDCs because um, Wall Street doesn't want them. So, you know, I'm I'm. That's fine. We we can fight one battle at a time. And right now, I think the the uh, CBDC battle and the Davos battle, um, all this ESG garbage. You know, I think that is the battle that we are facing right now. And you know, Wall Street's on our side. People don't want to believe that, but that's what I think. So, so going to the hyper hyperinflation narrative, does that mean if you're against that, you're against Balaji hitting his bet? <laughs> well i mean bitcoin can move very very rapidly especially when people are withdrawing liquidity from the exchanges you know if, mm -hmm. if you have somebody how many billions came off exchanges i mean many many billions and you have a big big buyer come in and just dump a billion dollars back into bitcoin and it's being such a low liquidity fixed supply asset it really could moon so there is a there is a chance that there's a wick that goes up to a million. I don't think so. Not within ninety days, but um, yeah, and not due to hyperinflation. And not due to yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, not due to hyperinflation. Um, I mean, there will be hyperinflation in other currencies. Did it? Did they specify that it was the dollar? I don't remember. I, I, I want to say he was, said one million USD. I'm okay. pretty sure. Well, yeah, but was it due to hyperinflation of the dollar? Yes, because it could. Okay. I think so. I'm think pretty so. sure. Yeah. yeah, he's basically like going around Paul Revere style, you know, the banks are failing, the banks are failing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you guys think about that? Because I saw something that Corey Clipson was saying about it is like, just wait, he's going to launch some new website or this is just a million dollars <laughs> worth of marketing. You know, it's building the Balaji brand. So what do you guys yeah, think about that? That's more my thought is it's marketing based and even if it doesn't even cl come close to hitting even if at the end of 90 days bitcoin's at twenty thousand dollars he's still drummed up a ton of attention um, and that's probably good for him yeah yeah cheap marketing yeah i'm around i'm around the same thought there's no way anybody thinks it's going to a million in 90 days especially the people defending it i'm like your rationale doesn't even make sense if he did <laughs> why wouldn't he just buy bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think he's he basically is saying that he's he could do that but he's like trying to bring more attention to it for everyone is is kind of his argument there but points just seem very very dramatized to me because i'm more in your camp ansel of i'm more concerned about like deflation than hyperinflation um so yeah, I, I don't see it 
his claims seem very dramatic to me. His sources and stuff all seems a little bit sketched to me too. The thing that's really been annoying me is people saying that it's just a 40 to one shot of this happening. And I'm like a 40, it going up 40 times does is not the same as a 40 to one odds. <laughs> but like, yeah, that's, I don't that's know if you've seen that. Like, not the same. <laughs> I was like, okay, if it goes up, what a hundred to one in the next two days that's not a hundred to one bet that's just yeah or if the price doubles that's not there's not a 50 percent chance of exactly the price doubling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stupid. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't i think 40 to one odds is pretty i mean that's uh optimistic on his side i would say it's probably more Very. like a thousand to one or ten thousand to one i mean yeah absolutely i think that's more more in line so um Going going on to um, shoot, Mitch, did you have something on that first before we move? Um, on the Balaji stuff, hyperinflation? No, I don't think so. Okay, so on that. as far as like CPI, and y- your thesis has been that CPI is not inflating, so now we're starting to see it tick back down. Do you think yeah. we're gonna see it start moving towards their? two percent goal or we're going to see it move towards zero what are you expecting to see with the cpi yeah i mean cpi measures prices not money printing so that's the distinction there and i would say that it depends on your time frame so if you measure from july to december of 2022 so just six months so instead of year over year you talk half year over half year you're already at two percent you're at one, it was like 1.8 or something like that right. over the, last, the second half of 2022. So it depends on what you look, look at. Um, I like watching month over month or quarter over quarter, you know, something like that, a little bit shorter time frame, especially when you are watching for a change. So the year over year, you can get a long, broad thing, but then when it does change, it's going to take a long time to roll back over. Um, yep. So if you're watching for that change, I wouldn't watch year over year. I'd watch month to month. And that's what what I remember in this was June of 2022. Month over month, CPI was 1.9%. That's one month. (laughs) If you annualize that month. You're a 20, yeah. you know, you're a 24% yeah, interest or CPI. <laughs> and what happened in July? It went to zero month over month. So mm-hmm. it was, it just fell off a cliff. And I called this on my podcast. I said, it was like hitting a brick wall in the economy. Something happened in June, between June and July that made CPI go in this acceleration to zero. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I think about CPI. A lot of people will push back and. I mean, they think I'm like an apologist for the, the system and <laughs> because I, I, I also agree with the, the, te- the what do you call it, uh, periodic formula upgrades that they do or formula changes that they do. I'm, I'm a, not a fan of that, but I understand that because, you know, we don't have buggy whips in the CPI anymore because we don't care about that. We, we, there's so many things that. We, we need to update it. Now, now you have to have the argument where how fast should you update it? Should you update it every year? Should you update it every 10 years? Um, they were doing like it was every 10 years for a long time. 
then they switched it to every five and then it was every two and then now this year it's like every one and so yeah they're they're changing it they're trying to figure this out what exactly it is uh is it a good faith effort a bad faith effort i tend to fall on the side that it's a good faith effort um of course there will be politics being played um it's individuals that are collecting this data there's individuals that are publishing the data so there will be individual biases in there um, and it's by the administration so the bureau of labor statistics is executive branch so there will be some bias in there um, granted but at the same time i think overall if you if you know that now you can look at the numbers and say okay i know there's probably a, a fudge factor here I know that they update this they're there. It's not perfect, but what is this telling me right now? And so that's the way I look at CPI. I, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, it tells me nothing. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's how I would explain CPI and how I recommend people look at it. It's not perfect. It's not like the gospel or anything, but it is a good faith effort and it's generally in the ballpark. So that's what I would say. Whenever, I look around now going through Kansas city, I am seeing, I mean, prices seem high everywhere. Now it doesn't like, I felt like one of the cool things about Kansas city was it was so cheap. And now yeah. I don't feel like it's any cheaper than anywhere else. I can't, I can't go to a food restaurant and eat for 15, $20. I don't know if you feel the same way, Mitchell, but yes. Yeah. I think, you know, and that's something even, non-Bitcoin friends, non-financers really noticing when I talk to them. Do you think those prices do start to come down or do you think we're stuck with those prices? I think prices come back down. Uh, this was something that Pierre Rochard, I don't, I don't remember if he was responding to me now or whatever, but it was about a year ago. And uh, he was like, oh, but prices don't come back down. You just get CPI going up and then prices will stay high. But if you look at commodities and you look at things like the Baltic dry index, which is like shipping costs and those types of things, those, those prices went up and they come back down. Just look at the price of oil, you know, it goes up and then it comes back down. So I think that, um, oh, and I'll say that that's different than the seventies when we had really high inflation in the seventies. If you look at oil, it went up to a whole new level, right? Now we, we didn't see that same thing with oil. We saw it go up and not make new all-time highs and actually come back down. So I think prices do come back down. Um, that might take a while because people have changed their pricing now and it's really hard to lower prices. I think it's harder to lower prices than it is to raise prices. I don't have any data to support that. I'm just saying that from my own intuition. I think it's uh, harder to lower prices than, it's definitely harder to lower wages. If you think about it, the people that got the 10% big bump from last year, say they got a 10% raise to keep up with the CPI, really hard to cut that 5% back. You know what I mean? So I think prices are sticky for different reasons. And, um, but, over time, I do expect things to come back down. Yeah. Would you say that's based, that's like a decent indicator of was it money printing or not? Uh, because if it's money printing, I would expect the prices to stay up 
But if it wasn't actually money printing, then I would expect that's just a supply shock. Prices come back down once that sorts itself out. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think, though, that you can get, I don't know if you've heard this before from when I, on my podcast when I said it, but um, the so you can have things that aren't money printing that will cause money printing down the road. So if you have fiscal stimulus, it might, it might be just pulling forward demand, right? It's pulling forward demand from the, I would have spent it in the future. That's savings. I'm pulling savings forward and spending it today. So uh, economic activity looks higher today. So what are people going to go do? The businesses are going to go hire people. They're going to go get loans from the bank. They're going to maybe add to their business um, and things like that. So that response to pulling that demand forward is inflationary. But the yeah, actual pulling that's of actually it is, creating more money. Yeah. Yes. But the actual spent fiscal spending might not be definitionally money printing. It's just uh, pulling savings forward to today. So overall, um, what was, sorry, what was the question? Uh, I think it was I just a comment. Yeah. Just about, a comment yeah, on about if ahead. we notice it'll, we'll tell that it was actual money printing. If, oh. if these prices or wages and everything stay high as opposed to falling. Yeah. So I think that is another thing that makes it sticky. Um, wages make it sticky the yeah different things uh, that they did expand some of the money supply due to the false signals put out there by fiscal spending and stuff so that yeah all of that factors in to being sticky and like businesses if i had before this whole thing my business had you know say five thousand dollars a month on debt what, what am i looking for in uh my debt burden, my certain mm -hmm. debt service. Like interest expense, yeah, debt service. Yeah, debt service was 5000 a month. Mm -hmm. But during this whole thing, I thought we were going to the moon. I thought, you know, CPI was going to keep going. I thought the, they've spent $3 trillion, $4 trillion, that the economy was red hot. So now my debt service is 10000 a month instead mm -hmm. of just 5000 a month. So now I have different business decisions. Now I need to keep my prices higher so that I can service that debt, you know? So there's many things that are sticky in this and how does that end up? I mean, the, the end of that story is not good. It's, it's layoffs, businesses going out of business. They, they would, they'll close their doors before they will lower their prices most likely. And that's a bad thing. Yeah. As a business owner that sells inventory, I would say it's very difficult to lower prices, like it's easy to raise prices because the inventory that we have is at the old prices. So as soon as mm -hmm. we raise prices and we sell through that old inventory, we get better margin until we actually buy at the new prices. But the opposite effect happens if they try to lower prices. We're at that point selling inventory that we bought at a much higher price. Um, but yeah, it, it would be very difficult. But I mean, if the situation calls for it and you need the cash to pay off debt, then you got to do what you got to do, which I think is you've seen some of it with just the huge inventory buildup. You've seen a lot of like sales and discounts and stuff more than yeah. we would typically see, I, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I'm perusing Amazon and everything's 20% marked down and you don't know mm -hmm. if that's real. They might've just jacked up the price and then mm -hmm. marked it down to keep up with everyone else. But 
um, there is an inventory cycle as well. I mean, you're, you're well aware of that. I'm sure that um, the inventory during COVID, you know, people were ordering double ordering or triple ordering. Oh, yeah. And, and then it finally came. Now what do they mm -hmm. do? They got all this huge that's, amount of, yeah, inventory. that's where we're at now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they had to lower yeah, prices sales, to get rid of that inventory. Dropped. Yeah, exactly. Sales have dropped off. We have like multiple suppliers who are like sending out emails with offers to all of their dealers, basically with mega discounts if you buy in bulk. And we did not see really any of that the last two years. Mm -hmm. But it's starting to happen now. Yeah. Well, another question kind of along these lines are is about the inverted yield curves. Mm. Do you think inverted yield curves are ever wrong? Yes, I do. I mean, depends on what uh, they're they're relatively new in human history. I mean, I'm talking like on a you know century long time frame. Inverted yield curves don't go back more than hundred years, right? Maybe 120 years, something like that. But this is a very new financialized thing, um, and we are in a very new position right now. Um, in the 70s, we actually had a lot of money printing and a lot of inflation. And now we've had a lot of high CPI, but we haven't had a lot of the money printing to back it up, in my opinion. So this is a kind of a brand new thing. And one of the what I've been talking saying about CPI and growth is that there this year there was going to be a race between falling CPI and falling growth. So if you look at nominal growth in 2020, or sorry, 2022, it was like 9, 10, 11% nominal growth. That's high. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that was due to CPI. You know, the prices yeah. went up, spending goes up because prices are going up and, and it looks really high. But then the economy adjusts. They start planning for higher prices or maybe they take out debt like we just talked about. And um, so now we ha are having crashing nominal growth i think we're it's falling very rapidly from 10 percent down to zero or maybe even negative and we're having cpi crashing at the same time so what is the real gdp well the real gdp in the beginning of 2022 was negative because the the growth did not outpace the cpi then at the second half of 2022 we had pretty high real gdp because growth stopped uh, or growth then was outpacing CPI because CPI had come back down. Mm -hmm. But what is it in 2023? Um, I think we're now on the back side of that. We're both C uh, GDP, nominal GDP and CPI are going down and it's kind of a race to zeros. Uh, and that feels very bad. Like I've talked about this many times to my guys over on Telegram and stuff um, that it's going to feel like a hardcore recession when GDP drops 10%. But CPI is dropping 10% too. Yeah. So how, that I think that can trick the yield curves. That can trick the interest rates. And the, the uh, largest, most liquid market in the world, U.S. Treasuries, they are adjusting to this right now. So we'll see where this ends up. But... Um, I, th I think we can avoid a deep recession, but we probably won't avoid a recession. Um, 
So the yield curve is right that we will have a recession. But it, right now it's signaling that we're going to have pretty, the worst recession since even worse than the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. So. What about like uh, Europe, China? Do you think they're more at risk for getting wrecked like that? Yes, but that goes into my um, geopolitical stuff with, uh, I don't believe in the whole Thucydides trap and China rising. I think the U.S. is outpacing China's growth for the last several years and we'll continue to do, we're pulling away. Um, There's many reasons behind that. Europe, I think, is shooting themselves in the foot with, they are dominated by Davos and by the Marxists, you know, uh, in Davos, Klaus Schwab and such. Um, and they have, they're shooting themselves in the foot with these sanctions on, with Russia and energy and everything. Uh, I've seen some hundred year, like there was a, a company, it was like a chemical company or something in Germany. And it, it's like 400 years old. It lived through both world wars. It went out of business. This is the worst thing, worse than World War II. Can you imagine? Worse than World War II for, for Germany. So I think that, yeah, the, a lot of these other places in the world are going to be hit really hard. Uh, the U.S. is kind of this island because if Europe is going to be hit really hard, if China is kind of a paper dragon or a paper tiger, whatever you call it, um, where is that money going to come to? It's going to come into the U.S., into U.S. dollar-denominated assets, probably into Bitcoin, probably into gold, some of those things. Um, And so, yeah, I I think that for those reasons, whether we have a recession, whether they have a recession, um, they'll probably have a harder recession, which will make it harder for us to avoid recession. So, yeah, I do think we will have recession, but it probably will be way more mild in the United States than compared to those other places. How do you think um, everything we're seeing between China, Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia with the yuan factors into that? Um, You mean like with the competing currencies and the de-dollarization and stuff? Sure, yeah. I mean, the last couple of weeks we've seen russia yeah it was russia settle uh what the lng with the yuan um do you think we're going to see more of that other people running to currencies that aren't the dollar or do you think that's probably gonna be just a fad i think they they're okay a lot of people think it's a master plan they they want to get away from the dollar okay this is the BRICS. They got the Xi and they have Putin and they have Modi and, you know, all these leaders from around the world. And they they got together with the BRICS and they have this plan to de-dollarize because the evil American capitalists that brought more prosperity to the world in the last 75 years than human, all of human history combined, those evil Americans, you know, that that's, that's what people think, but that's, they are sitting around, but no, I think right now in the world, we're going through a deflationary grind. And that is another way to say that is a money shortage or a monetary shortage. And so in a monetary shortage, you're looking for monetary alternatives. They're just throwing crap at the wall and see if it sticks because 
oh, maybe if we start our own currency, maybe we do a BRICS currency, maybe we settle in Yuan, this might help us. They're not very far from finding gold in, again in Bitcoin. You know, So mm -hmm. I think that if they keep doing that, they're going to find out, well, this doesn't work. A BRICS currency is stupid. It's, <laughs> it's literally stupid. It's like really a bunch of emerging markets that have horrible monetary policy, divergent interests, you know, they are, have different economies, different forms of government. I mean, communism all the way to democracy and in between authoritarianism thrown in there in Russia. I mean, you have all these different forms of government, divergent interests. And so, yo, the BRICS currency is just crazy. It's on the face of it. It's crazy, but they will continue. We will continue to see this experimentation because there's a monetary shortage out there in the world and they are looking for an alternative. And like I said, they're going to find Bitcoin sooner or later. Right now there's this push for CBDCs because maybe the, the globalists are telling them, oh, CBDCs are good for you. That's a, that's a monetary alternative. You probably want to try a CBDC. They're going to figure out that's no good. Um, how long does that take? Man, might take another couple halvings. I, I really don't know. But it feels like they're so close. It feels like people are so close to finding the answer. And I'm, I'm talking like on the sovereign level, they're close to finding this answer. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Do you think that they, how do I say this? Are they aware of how good of a thing Bitcoin is just from a store of value and that they're desperately seeing if there's something else that will work? Or do you think it's just going to take all of their solutions failing over and over before they're like, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, well, the way I kind of think of their their thought process is me before I it clicked. Mm. And I remember watching a video or something about how decentralized or distributed consensus works and how the you know cryptography makes it so it's a one-way function. Once I understood one-way function in cryptography and understood how this distributed consensus works, it was just like Oh, uh, that, that was when it really clicked for me. And I don't think that they've had that moment because they haven't let themselves have that moment. And even, you know, Lagarde has said her son is into Bitcoin. Powell's kids are probably into Bitcoin. The, the head of the CFTC, what was his name? Jean Carlo. I don't know if you guys have been around to remember him. The previous head of the CFTC, Jean Carlo. Uh, he was in front of Congress. This was probably back in like 2016 or 2017. And I, he was saying about how his kids are into Bitcoin. <laughs> right. So they, they know this. It's just they haven't had this click moment yet. And that will come. There's also a um, ideological kind of resistance to it because I, I'm a big fan of Jeff Schneider. Uh, if you guys know Jeff Schneider's work. Mm -hmm. And he... Um, is adamant that we need elastic money supply, right? So he knows very well about Bitcoin. He's actually now, I guess, he's consulting on a blockchain project, like a, some stable coin thing. I think um, I saw something about that, yeah. Yeah, so so he is, 
he's very well aware of how Bitcoin works and what Bitcoin is, but he has this idol, ideological block that he thinks that money elasticity is the most important thing. So there's that there's that type of argument as well. But eventually they're going to get it that mo maybe they'll have to get wrecked. You know, maybe unfortunately, maybe these sovereigns, maybe they'll see one of the sovereigns go down. Uh, they'll see one of the sovereigns get utterly wrecked and the rest of them will be like, crap. That they had the same thought process as I did, and they just got completely wrecked by the market. What can we do differently? We better start looking at some other options. And so then they'll give Bitcoin a try because they saw their friends get burned to the stake or uh, whatever, like Gaddafi getting mutilated in the desert. They're going to see their friends, their bankster friends and their politician friends from across the pond or wherever. They're going to see them getting literally probably drug out on the street. So they don't want to be part of that. And they're going to they're going to change. That's it might have to come to that. We might have to have some sort of sacrificial country. And I don't know which one it would be, but that's might might be what we need. I don't know. When it comes to all of these countries trying to get it, whether they will get it, where are you at with thinking we're seeing countries starting to mine Bitcoin, especially with the mm. hash rate skyrocketing? Very, very good question. Th this is one area I want to know more about. And I always try to, when I'm at a conference or something, I always try to meet those miners because they they have uh, such a different uh, it's like a exposure to different players in yeah. the space they have otc players they have government players because they're talking to the power producers they're talking to maybe the the government energy and they're talking to the government regulators and i mean they just have a, such a broad spectrum oh and investors in the space they have a really different perspective on what's going on um so i i always and it's completely different than mine that's important too is that's not my world i'm not a hard hat kind of guy i wish i was i mean i like doing some diy stuff but i'm not like a hard hat kind of guy that these miners are they're awesome people so um uh I think that, I don't know, what do you guys think? I think it's working its way into the conversation in, in almost every hall of decision-making that there is. I bet they're talking about Bitcoin mining. At least it's on the agenda somewhere, wouldn't you say? I I would say so. I mean, especially if, even if you're not sold on what it is, if you think we've got, if there's any country out there, which there are, who just have extra energy, I mean, why would you even not plug one S19 in and see what happens? <laughs> yeah, I think the same thing about any major power producer like Exxon or anybody like that. Like, it just seems so obvious for them to like run a pilot program. And I think you're starting to see like news about things like that, them running some pilot programs because it just makes so much sense for them. And I think that could be the domino that then gets it more, more credence to like a sovereign if the companies start doing it. Yeah. Some of the most powerful companies in the world does the yeah. oil companies. They, I think Bitcoin magazine has some oil companies sponsoring this. this yeah, I think that's right. 
I, I think it might be Shell or BP or something that's, like that. And yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Bullish. Um, speaking <laughs> of oil companies and oil, do you have any thoughts on, I've seen a bunch of news recently on a bunch of nations cutting oil production and some mm. people thinking that that's like a, again, like a ploy to hurt America. Are you on that side or more on the side of like what Jeff Snyder's saying of like, <clears throat> this is really bad news, guys. They're cutting because there's no demand. Yes. And that that's the same thing I've been saying for a long time is that the demand is falling through the floor. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they're cutting in 2022. They cut twice, I believe. And it was like a smaller cut. And then they cut 2 million barrels per day. OPEC did. But when I went in and researched like their quota versus their production, they were already producing below their quota by 2 million barrels. Damn. And so they, they didn't really even cut their production. They just cut the quota back down to where I they know. are, their production. And the same thing on this one as well. They, they in January, OPEC was producing 1.8 million barrels per day under their quota. And they're cutting 1.6 million barrels. That's what they've agreed the to. Of the quota. Well, yeah. it depends. Like some of like Saudi in, individually has said they're going to cut 500,000. So there are different differences in there on this one between the one in 2022. So it might actually be a cut of, I don't know, half a million to a million barrels per day. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's negated a lot by the fact that they're already underproducing their quota by a lot. Um, but yeah, I think it's to try to control the oil price to keep their profits up. I read some headline or some article today that was uh, saying that Saudi has not not only mega projects that they had to pay for, they call their own projects giga projects. So they, the Saudi has all these gigantic projects that they're trying to fund that they need to keep the oil price high. Um, but the problem with that, I think, is. I, I OK, first off, the U.S. is the largest oil producer in the world now. Uh, we produce 12.4 and Saudi produces under 10 now, uh, 10 million barrels per day. And so. The U.S. is kind of becoming the new OPEC in a way. Uh, the U.S. is able to be that marginal producer. And we're the marginal consumer of oil as well. So we have a very uh, strong position. Um, I think that there is going to come a point where the elites say, well, we got to open up American drilling. You know, we got to drill baby drill. Because that's ge that's a geopolitical club that we can swing around, and people laugh in America for being horrible at diplomacy and statesmanship or statescraft or whatever the term is. But and that's true, the U.S. is horrible at those things, and it's embarrassing as hell to see, you know, the the current administration get out there and not be able to finish a sentence, uh, not be able to walk up a flight of stairs onto the. Um, whatever uh, air force one it's embarrassing but we still have the biggest stick in the world and if we keep pumping oil 
at this rate. And we decide, well, you know what, let's increase our oil production by 3 million barrels in the next two years. It can easily happen. Easily. There's nothing to stop a 180 on oil policy and, you know, for the, the U.S. to become that marginal producer and marginal consumer in the world. So that's kind of how I view this. And when I look at, okay, what is what did OPEC do? What are they saying? They talked to China like a month prior. They signed some deal about being best friends. I don't think they actually signed a treaty, but it said like, hey, we're best buddies forever, you know. And um, so that's a geopolitical chess match that's going on with the U.S. and with OPEC. Um, so, yeah, that's how I look at it. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, for sure. Did you have any more? Um, on that? Uh, I was just going to ask with all of this potential chaos, whether it's a 2008 type scenario or some lesser recession, uh, where do you see Bitcoin fitting in? Because this would be, it wasn't really around in 2008 for that mm -hmm. recession. It was obviously there for 2020, but that was kind of a unique uh, flash crash. Where do you think Bitcoin fits in going forward? Um, I Well, I see, like we talked about there a little bit earlier, um, a deflationary grind. We'll have little reflationary bumps throughout the way. But overall, the end of this system, the current dollar, the current dollar monetary system or financial system is a deflationary one. It's not an inflationary one. So, yeah, how does Bitcoin fit into that? And like we said, Bitcoin is a monetary alternative, and I think it's going to catch a major bid in, in these deflationary times. One of the problems we're seeing in the plumbing of the system with signature Silicon Valley and stuff, you know, it's, it's counterparty risk. That's what everyone's worried about is counterparty risk. And if we just, you know, pound the table, Bitcoin has no counterparty risk as long as you hold it your own keys, right? Mm -hmm. Bitcoin has no counterparty risk. Bitcoin has no counterparty risk. That could be extremely popular to a lot of big money. I mean, billions yeah. are flowing out of these banks into money market funds and stuff. Well, they maybe just divert 1 billion into Bitcoin. And if we have this super low liquidity on exchanges, the, the price could really skyrocket. So that's kind of my uh, general investment thesis. And w I could detail out maybe some price targets or something like that. But overall, that's what I would say is the ideas. Kind gotcha. of on the point of price targets or price action. Do you think that the halvening is going to continue to have an effect on the price? Or I, my thought is that it's probably going to be half as less each time that we have a halvening. I'm curious your thoughts. You mean like the the deflationary spiral effect afterwards? Yeah, it just seems like each cycle we go down, or like the spike is less than the last spike and so my thought is that this next one is isn't going to be as crazy anymore and it's going to continue to be that way every four years yeah i mean i've seen the logarithmic regression or whatever where it gets less and less and trails off um that's possible um i thought maybe last year we could see a double like instead of a, a four-year cycle, a full 
throated full year four year cycle i thought maybe we could see two smaller two-year cycles so it could break off and there could be different ebbs and flows throughout that i don't know how much that's played out it's in 2019 it worked really well but um right now it's it's not working the same so i don't know i think that the having has not it's not only a monetary phenomenon it's a social phenomenon it's a yep. psychological thing and so and it's extremely unique it's I'm, no one's ever seen anything like this before and so yeah the actual monetary effects might wane but the social and the psychological effects might increase so i don't know how that would look or how that would work out um my instinct is it will probably get less and less throughout the 100 years next 100 years um but also i mean we got to get to a million 10 million something we've like that got, sooner or later yeah, yeah we've only got like 75 days so <laughs> <laughs> and, and how, how do we get because you know think about i mean i i think about price all the time but also because you know if we want bitcoin to change the world we need to have a hundred trillion dollar market cap we're not going to change the world with a 500 billion dollar market cap you know so it yeah if you want to change the world you need to get up to those higher price price points and so that yeah i i want it to not take my entire rest of my life to get and change the world. I'd like to have it change the world sooner rather than later. So how do we get there? I think that it could be we have a decreasing like having cycle and then all of a sudden there's some sovereign that adopts it whether it's yep. the US or whether it's uh Brazil jumps on board. I don't know if they'd be that crazy but um you know jump on board and just shoot it up. Uh that's where it would all come from and it would be a repricing event. A CK on uh, from Bitcoin Magazine, he and I talked about this one time, and I, I was just like, "Yeah, that's the perfect way to put it. That there's just going to be like a repricing event that the market just moves 10x in yeah. a matter of a week, mm -hmm. and that's it. You know, and then it's going to be stable up at this higher price point, and that also brings more liquidity in, so people can have businesses on Bitcoin because there's a, so much more." money out there you know one of the things people talk about deflationary money is going to hurt velocity because people are just going to hold on to their money but really it's the opposite man when you're when your asset appreciates you feel richer and you go out and spend money that, that's what i think and so mm -hmm. if bitcoin does do some sort of 10x in a few week period at some point people there's going to be so much more money circulating in the bitcoin economy and then you almost can't ignore it from you know the traditional financial space they they'll have to once bitcoin gets to be a 10 trillion dollar asset they aren't going to be able to ignore it period that that's that's the real deal at that point how soon until we see 12k bitcoin because <laughs> <laughs> i'm still waiting <laughs> oh man it's not going back down buddy it's going higher. Yeah. Do you think <laughs> you think we're we're up from here then? I think so. I think we started the next bull market. I mean, we could see mid twenties, maybe twenty thousand. 
max, but I don't think we're going back to 12 or below 20. <laughs> Man, if Don was here, he'd be excited about going levered long. <laughs> I think the last time we were on here, I mean, June June of last year, it was probably at around 20K. Okay, and, I love right now. Yeah, and I we Moist Turtle was on that episode. Yeah. And I want to say he thought we were going like 14, 16,000, which he was happy. Yeah. Yeah. He was super bearish. I remember that. Yeah. I don't remember what a specific number that he said, but he was very bearish. I remember uh-huh. that. <laughs> okay. So that was June of what? June of 20, uh, 2020. Yeah. 2022. Oh, yeah. That was right at the, the Celsius crash bottom, basically. That's right. Oh, uh, yeah. So we were about at 20,000. Yeah. Crazy. That is, I, it's hard to believe we've been here this long. Yeah, right <laughs> around these same levels. I mean, mm-hmm. this has been a very, very painful bear market, uh, even for like long-term Bitcoiners, because most long-term Bitcoiners, we we kind of have this predetermined idea that we're going to reach euphoria at a certain stage. And then we're going to we get euphoria before we get the bear market. And this year right. or this cycle, we didn't really get this hyper euphoria stage. And so it's been really hard uh, psychologically. I think this this uh, four year cycle has been very, very hard, probably because I went through the Mount. I you know got here just right before Mount Gox. And so I experienced that bear market. Then I experienced the 2018 bear market. Yeah, the COVID crash and, and all that. And this has been psychologically the worst for sure. Um, it's hard to hold, but that's what holders get. That's why holders get the the gains because they hold through those hard times. I think the hardest part for me is looking back over the last year, thinking I've woke up almost every day, looked at the price and been like, is today the day? (laughs) (laughs) And I've been wrong for over a year. (laughs) That's the hardest part. Yeah, it was was a huge fake out. I think for long time holders and like new holders, because I feel like a lot of new holders that came in from you know the learning about it during covid and that having cycle worse and following you know something like the stock to flow model mm. they were like listening to willy woo on what bitcoin <laughs> did and they're talking like we're probably gonna hit like 200k easily like i could see it hitting 500k and then yeah. it goes it starts shooting up and it's exponentially going up you get to 50 60 almost 70 and you're all of a sudden it just that's it mm-hmm so it was a huge fake out. I, I agree, then, very difficult psychologically. And it's been a grind coming down. Like mm, every time you think mm. it's going to come, it's going to turn around, boom, yep. Celsius <laughs> hits you in the face. Then you exactly. think, okay, we're, we're going to hold this. We're going to hold this floor. We're, we're going to bull market time, baby. Boom, FTX, you know, crashes. So yeah, it's been very psychologically hard. So yeah, this has been a nice win, if nothing else, of... Not that the banks going down is a good thing, but as it happens, where we start to pump a little, it's then <laughs> yeah, right. Nothing else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, we've been going here a while, so we can start to close it out. Um, yep. Not sure if you remember the last three questions we always ask, but uh, well, I'll ask him again. Is when's the next time you're coming through Kansas City? 
<laughs> well, my, uh, you know, half my family still lives up there in uh -huh. Omaha. So uh, maybe soon. Don't know. Okay. Don't have any plans, set plans right now, but sometime soon. Perfect. Got to, got to run through here. Uh, in the last 10 months since we've talked, have you bought any good domain names? <laughs> uh, I haven't bought any domain names in the last 10 months. Dang. People need to get Dang. on it. It must, it must really be a bear market if no one's buying domain. I think names. I've given, I think yep. I've, uh, let some domain names roll off of my account actually. In the, last 10 <laughs> the ones you realized they were never that good. <laughs> yeah they were selling <laughs> yeah. yeah they were they were bull market domains uh and then lastly are there any uh we asked this last time i was gonna look to see what you had said but are there any resources you'd point people to to listen or read that have been influential i guess especially in the last year that you've come across um yes i would Definitely read Unrivaled by Michael Beckley. That's a definite. Um, Peter Zion's stuff. Um, really nothing in Bitcoin that I would, I mean, I don't read a lot of Bitcoin books, to be honest with you, but uh, I, I read a lot more of the kind of geopolitical stuff. Um, this is a really good book here. The Psychology of Totalitarianism mm -hmm. by... Desmet, uh, that's a really good book because he talks about how obviously st statistics can be used for anything. There, there's no such thing as like an honest truth. Um, so mm -hmm. that is one of the things I've tried to work into my thought process and how I view the world. Uh, yeah, so that's what I would say. Cool. Well, thanks again for joining us. I enjoyed this conversation. Helped a lot. And uh, or could you also let it, everybody know the best way to find you again? Yeah, bitcoinandmarkets.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. I have a YouTube, a new YouTube, because they deleted my old YouTube but or terminated it. So that I had to start a whole new YouTube. That's BTC Market Update. And I have a telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Perfect. And FedWatch. Oh yes, and FedWatch. 1230 Eastern time on Thursdays with Bitcoin magazine. Check it out. I'm on the podcast feed as well for Bitcoin Magazine. Sweet. Thanks so much, Ansel. All right. Thanks, yep, guys. Thank you.